Hey there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what brought you right here to this very moment? Episode 12, Eaters of the Dead, from Fantasy Newsletter, November 1982. Hmm, I saw that movie with Antonio Banderos, 13th Warrior. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, sorry. Michael Crichton. You need to have jokes that are references to things I know about, which puts pretty much all of pop culture out. Okay. Can you make a joke referencing, oh, I don't know, Jane Austen, Laura Ingalls Wilder? Yeah, but it's relevant to Eaters of the Dead. Oh, dear. (laughs) Okay. Well, you want to explain your joke or we just let listeners enjoy that while I remain in ignorance? We'll let the listeners enjoy that. Excellent. What little enjoyment there is to be had of it. So, article. You want to give us a summary of this nonfiction piece? Yes. Could you sound a little more certain? No. (laughs) Okay. So I broke this up into about three to four sections. So the first section, I think, is a Lamarckian Chesso story evaluation about predator versus scavenger. That seems a fair description. The kind of the subsection off of that is like how you couldn't implement the thing that brought about scavengers in your own life because you would get sick. And then we stray into the Falkland Islands War. And then we get maybe something about the sex lives of robots. Well, that is not the summary I think any other human being would have written about it this, but it's apt. Okay, so I guess we'll start with the first section. Certainly, Lamarckian evolution. The main question that he is posing is he's asking the readers, how did a system of scavengers come about? And he wants to know, like, was the eagle first or was the vulture? And I guess kind of counter argument to each one of those is, so if the vulture was first, then the eagle is just the vulture that succeeded. Right, the glorified vulture. Yeah, and then if the eagle was first, then the vultures are just the eagles that didn't make it. And it's a weird way to start an article. I did not really know where he was going with this. Neither did I. And I don't think I figured it out until I was fully halfway through. So it is a confusing beginning. Yet the conversation between, well, how did predators come about at all? And Mm -hmm. then if predators came first, how did scavengers follow them? And then why that doesn't work. And I mean, the lovely pull quote. Can I read the pull quote, please? Yes. So he's been talking about buzzards versus eagles and lions and hyenas. And he says, if this were a hard SF magazine, I'd suggest now that you put a steak on the drain board, cut a hunk off every day, cook it and eat it. That way you could find out just how ripe it had to get before you couldn't keep it down. Fortunately for you, we're all fantasists here, so you don't have to do that. And so he's making a point that you can't just turn from a a predator into a scavenger because Mm. rotting meat is actually quite harmful to pretty much everybody. Yeah, there was a 2000s trend on the internet of high meats. Of what? 
high meats, like getting a high off of rotting fermented meats. People would cut it up like a piece of steak up and leave it in a jar out on the counter. <gasps> yeah, and then they wouldn't chew it, but they'd just eat the whole thing, drop it down their, their gullet. Do these people not have functioning noses? That is not a question I can answer. I found it a very odd trend when... How would it make you high also? That doesn't make any sense to me because all I can imagine is vomiting and other stuff. So I did not do this. Just Good, be because that way we can remain friends. <laughs> yeah, but my understanding was that people started doing it because it gave a different high than like drugs or like huffing gasoline. I think they were mistaking feeling sick for being high. Well, yeah, but it's the internet, so. Well, I know, and kids these days eat Tide Pods, so <laughs> what's a little rotten meat? Exactly. So, but yeah, it's a excellent little, you called that a pull? The pull quote? Pull yeah. Quote. It comes about a third of the way into the article, and then it's also the couple sentences that they put at the beginning of the article. So it's a, a charming little concept. And he's funny in this article. I, there are quite a few points in the article that he's just hilarious. He points out things that you'd have to have life experience to understand, or it's just, but it's also cleverly embedded in the whole argument that it's hard to share the jokes. Yeah, because so. there's a section about if snakes started out as vegetarian. What did they do? Squeeze oranges? Yeah, yes. so, so like the constrictors, they, yes. it's like, are they, were they getting fruit juice from? And that would, and so that ties into one of his examples that a herbivore was eating some grass, and then there was a bug on there, and it was like, hmm, extra nutrients. And, yeah, yum, yum, protein. Yeah, and then they started selecting leaves with bugs on them, and then pretty soon they were just going for the bugs. Yes, and that whole passage is hilarious. It was Eden, paradise, though that word actually means hunting ground. Heaven on earth, unless you were a begonia. One day, some careless eater chomped on a leaf that happened to have a big bug on it. It tasted good. And then in parentheses, you begin to see the weakness of this theory already. <laughs> I mean, my chickens like mealworms, but I don't like the idea of eating a bug. <laughs> well, one thing, too, I, if you're just reading this, not out loud, at least for me, a lot of the humor, like kind of, it passes so quickly. I found when I read it out loud, I was like, oh, ha ha, because there's a lot of little twists and turns like that, so. Yes, like the snake around the orange that it's squeezing. I also liked the, a live deer may jump around for 10 years or more, but when he dies, he'll be gone in a week. Dead, he doesn't attract attention by moving or making noise. He smells, of course, but so does a live deer. If you're a dog or a wolf or even just an experienced human hunter. That's not particularly a joke, but it is one of those moments where you're like, ah, oh, yes, Gene Wolfe lived a real life. Yeah. He did things and he had experiences because probably most people wouldn't think about, if you're not a hunter, you wouldn't think about the role smell plays in hunting and the way that if you've been out in the woods long enough, you've smelled things. If you've lived long enough to have some experience, you've begun to put those smells to things. And mountain lions have a smell mm -hmm. and deer, of course, have a smell. And bears. Oh, yes, very much so. And skunks. But we well, all knew that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he has a line here. The point of all this is that carrion eaters must evolve. 
And part of what he's saying, which plays into his ending point, right. is that there has to be an existing ecosystem of many separate species for there to be an ecological role for a carrion eater. Which makes a lot of sense. So it would only be in a culture like ours of such surplus and excess that you could have a large population of extreme veganism. Or I don't actually know if this is really a thing or if it's just a Hollywood caricature of a thing. The idea of a fruitarian who not only is strictly vegan, but only eats fruit that has already fallen from the tree would never pluck something. So yes, I'm calling fruitarians carrion eaters, but <laughs> it's, yeah, I think it makes sense. Yeah. And, and as far as my understanding goes, that yes, there are people like that. Okay. that That's not just a... People who dumpster dive, yeah. right? Like you can only... A freegan. Yeah. You can only be a freegan if there is an exploding volcano of wastefulness around you, which is, I mean, what we have. So you can only be a buzzard. Again, I guess I'm... Please don't write me letters. I'm not really saying that freegans are buzzards. <laughs> it's just there's an analogous evolutionary niche here. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if somebody was a conscientious freegan, they would agree with what you just said, that they are scavengers in the sense they are not letting good things go to waste. Yes, like the eyeballs on a dead deer. Yes, I believe that's what I was agreeing with. <laughs> okay. So there's a section about how essentially rifles kind of made apex predators Redundant. Obsolete, yeah. yeah. Outdated. And that he has a comment and aside that uh, most of us are actually hyenas. And the thing is, is like once a hyena gets old, like unless it can go find a zoo, it's a dead hyena. Yes. They can't keep feeding. Yeah. So rifles have made apex predators unnecessary. But, and Wolf doesn't address this, but I think what he's saying also goes along with the idea that vehicles have made apex predators obsolete because lions don't need to be leaving kills along out in the wilderness because the carrion eaters have a buffet along every highway. I was reading a book not too long ago about the caracaras, which are a species of bird, and they're very adaptable. And they're possibly the most intelligent birds by category. They're very creative, very good at learning patterns, and they're very playful. And mm. their adaptation or their survival mechanism is that they will investigate anything. And so they're mm. not highly specialized in anything in particular. They're closely related to the true falcons, but they are on a completely different developmental trajectory where they're just very curious and intelligent birds. And some of the species that were in significant decline, or some of the subspecies were in significant decline, are having a resurgence because there's such plentiful carrion along roadways in places where they're endangered. Oh. And so they are very good at eating small or large animals that have been struck by cars. This may be the time for a humorous aside about... Um, my brother was telling me a story last night about someone he knows who was driving along the highway and there was a deer that had just been struck and was flopping around on the road. And there were four older women out of their car, very anxious and upset that it wasn't their car that had hit the deer, about the poor deer and having a very loud conversation about getting the deer to a deer doctor. <laughs> and this very rural sort of guy, very large rural sort of guy, pulled over in his very large pickup and got out and said, well, I'm a deer doctor. 
walked over to the deer, pulled the hunting knife out of its sheath on his hip, slit the deer's throat, and picked the carcass up and threw it in the back of his truck and drove off without saying anything else. (laughs) So what I'm saying is we're all hyenas? Yeah, I think so. Oh, man. I would like to interview those bystanders and see if they... Yes. I would love to run across their telling of this story. It's probably on Facebook somewhere. Probably. And they probably tried calling the cops on them, too. Possibly. So the next section here, if you're... Now we're in the Falklands War. Yeah. This one was weird because I vaguely, or at least I thought I remembered the Falkland Islands War, but I was, must have been pretty young when it happened. And so I think I more remember kind of the aftermath of it when it was... Right, the conversation about it. Yeah. I don't know the dates of the Falklands War, but this article was published in November of 1982, which would make you all of, I think, one turning two. Yeah, 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 yeah. So definitely, I obviously do not have actual memories of the war. It must be years later of the conversation. Well, ongoing conversation about it, Mm -hmm. right. So the whole war, because the Falkland Islands, were they British? Were they Argentina owned them? Right. They've put it to vote multiple times. They've voted each time. If you believe the votes weren't like... Yes, if this was a free and fair election. Yeah, and that they chose to stay with the UK. And then due to various factors of propping up possibly a a failing political system in Argentina, or there's resources out in the ocean that may come with extending territorial rights. The Falkland Islands are one of the final places where the Caracara are still thriving, incidentally. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So the war, Argentina invaded. Yes. And the British, England sent force to liberate them which nobody really thought was going to happen. They thought like, well, by the time the ships get to the Falkland Islands, the peacemakers, like this would be negotiated out and there would be some way to avoid the war. However, that did not happen. British ships were sunk in this. I, I don't remember any of the names. Like I said, I think I have imaginary rememberings of the war. Right. So. So Wolf brings up that he was watching a reel about the airplanes firing. Right. Missiles firing from warships to planes or planes to warships. Yeah. So he uses that as a jumping point. It's so weird. Like, in one sense, it's weird because we have a shift here from now we're no longer talking about a biological ecosystem. But he shifts here and begins speaking about a mechanical ecosystem as though the machines were the main ecosystem. And then we, as biological beings, are kind of the... We're just hitching a ride. Yeah. Like microbial life in our guts. He's talking about, I hear that man has conquered the air or some such nonsense. Women object to this phrasing for reasons I need not belabor. But there is a much better reason to object. It is not true. No man, woman, or child has ever flown in the sense that a buzzard or a bat does. And if we are willing to stretch the meaning of fly until it is about to snap, the best candidate we will find is Ballistico, the circus star who gets shot from a cannon. All this will be blindingly obvious within a hundred years when biological manipulation has given us real flying humans. But that is another story. Is this where I mentioned that I've been trying to write a story with a flying person in it? I don't know. But it's the Autarch's shock troops. Yes. The, The Valkyries. 
I think he yeah. literally calls them Valkyries and that show up for like a paragraph. And Wolf is clearly here in this parenthetical statement. He thinks this is obviously going to happen. And then he throws it into his extreme futuristic world as an aside. It's a very small moment in the Book of the New Sun. But the shot from a cannon. Yeah. It's just once again, it's one of those like, yeah. he's just throwing off the well, absurdities. But Here he is in an essay and this the meaning is as dense and layered and folded as one of his stories. It is the machines who have conquered the air. They sometimes take us along as passengers or much less often guides. But millions of machines are quite capable of flying without us. And then he goes on to talk about how you can be taking a commercial flight and the airplane can land without a pilot. And the pilot's going to land it because he's there, but they might as well be playing leapfrog down the aisle because the plane can handle it on their own. And that seems intimately tied to the developments he has in his Book of the Long Sun, where machines and persons are, they're an interconnected set of beings Mm. that have a shared sense of humanity, personhood, beingness. Well, and even going beyond Long Sun into Earth of the New Sun. Beyond and around and through and something about the corridors of time. Well, one thing that struck me is when he gets on Zadkiel's ship, Mm -hmm. the Severian speaks to the doors, like the locks on the doors, as though they have personhood. And another, somebody else explains to him, like, well, it's, they're limited in what they understand. But, like, Severian doesn't discount that. He's just like, oh, okay, they're people that don't understand as much is the way he recontextualizes it. So, yeah, what I'm trying to piggyback on what you're saying is that follows through even up through the different universes and evolutions of humankind and all the creatures that are surrounding them as they go up through, so... Yeah, and then we come to the last section here. Now back to the question of evolution. This has been a strange journey. We started with vultures from eagles or eagles from vultures, and we went through eating rotten meat is disgusting, (laughs) and through the machines can fly, we cannot, not yet anyway. And now we're back to the question of evolution. We have machines that are capable of knocking each other off without human aid. Now, I think it's important to realize for our listeners, this is 1982. This is not 2020-whatever. This is 1982. We hadn't gone full drone war, military members in a bunker in Arizona controlling flying machines halfway around the world via satellite. We were still in a much more limited world. Yeah, it was mechanical. In the, like wasn't as tied into software and yes. that like predictive modeling and AI decision-making. And if there was, like, it's very rudimentary. Right, and slow. Yes, At least compared to what we can do now. And I say we, and I can't do any of it. Yeah, so for some time, I've been wondering which would come first, the mechanical lion or the mechanical hyena. I'll bet you haven't, but you would have if you hadn't been busy with more important stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, had you ever wondered which comes first, the mechanical lion or the mechanical hyena? As a viewer of Transformers, had always assumed it was going to be the mechanical lion (laughs) as a child. seems to be his argument that once we have a machine that can take up the broken and decayed parts of machines that have been knocked out in battle and Mm -hmm. make new machines out of it, then we'll have a mechanical hyena. Yeah. 
We have all these dead machines up on blocks in the yards of hillbilly houses. Military R&D gets all the funding. But anybody who's been in a war, and not just in uniform, will tell you there are soon more knocked-out machines lying about than working ones zipping around. The dead machines accumulate, decaying much more slowly than organic soldiers. The living ones thin out. An M91 ghoul that could convert the crashed planes and knocked-out tanks and trucks into some kind of working fighters for its side would be one of the most valuable weapons any army could have. Now we have the plot to the Terminator 3 movie? I guess so. It's not a very good movie. So. Okay. <laughs> Which one is this? What's Terminator 3? Oh, it's the Terminator that they send back in time. She has the ability to, she's got some sort of nanovirus or something. And so she's going around like converting our machines into oh, weapons. into Terminator accessories. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's not a very good movie. That's okay. I'll skip it. There's nothing new under the gun. <laughs> uh-huh. No, what he said is anybody who says there's nothing good new under the gun will be thrown in the pool and held down. So it sounds to me like you're volunteering to be thrown in the pool and held down. That's a good way to baptize people. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> He's Catholic. They sprinkle. Yeah, we can't line it all up. So this is why I was talking about the reproductive lives of robots, because I was thinking about bees. And we tend to forget, like, we think of bees as like, oh, yay, the pollinators, and oh, they also give us honey. And then when you actually get thinking about it, like, from the poor bee's perspective, it's just out doing its thing to keep the hive going. And somehow, through a quirk of evolution, like, they are completely involved in the sex lives of a bunch of other plants. Without the bee's assistance, would have had to develop some other mechanism that was maybe a little less polyamorous. Yeah. So it's kind of where Wolf lands this article mm -hmm. that in one sense, we're kind of like the bees. Like we're making these machines and they're wearing out and they're, they're rusting and they're in junk piles. But however, there's going to be a point where there's a tipping point where they'll be thinking machines and then they will be able to rebuild and cannibalize parts from other broken down old machines that don't work anymore. But they'll probably need us to ferry parts back and forth and therefore we'll be involved in the sex lives of robots. Yeah, pretty much. Which sounds uncomfortable and I hope that happens long after I'm in the grave. Unless you're reanimated. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Wait, people as zombie bees helping robots reproduce. Okay, this sounds like a Gene Wolfe short story. It actually does. Now that you said that, I can't remember the name of the story, but there's a story about two AI machines after humanity, like, is probably wiped out in a war, but their programming's slightly different, so they're continuously tearing down the other ones. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, though. Well, we'll get to it eventually. Yeah, so. at some point. Yeah, but that story seems to build on these ideas. But then we get, like, because I'm thinking in Tracking Song, too, because there's the old robots, because there's the one that's like the worm and the one like the mountain. And they're down there in the city, like there are some people and other creatures, but they're down there still doing their thing. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I obviously thought about much more obvious references, which Long Sun and the chemical persons and the way that they were marrying and then making new robots together like as a united project, and it was somehow necessary for the two of them to come together to make a child. And Wolf, of course, didn't spell out how that worked, but he was clearly, this is there. This essay is there in that story. 
Yeah. In that aspect, it makes sense because he's introducing the ability to evolve if you have two separate, like the robots have to come together. Right. And there's the... There's a mixing of genes there. Yeah. So, and the bringing about of something new and mm -hmm. the potential for mutation. So, well, this was a dense article. Yeah. I think I'm feeling ready for some fiction again sometime soon. So maybe we should get a story queued up next. Yeah. I do have one thing that I didn't mention as we were going through. Was this your discomfort with how fantasy magazines seem to make sure that there's a naked picture on every page? No, it wasn't oh. that, but that is a there is that in there. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because it doesn't seem to be particularly related to the story, but there's a naked guy standing over a decaying skeleton as the illustration to go along with this essay. Holding two knives or a sword and a knife? A sword and a knife, yeah. No, what else did you have? This is just an aside into Wolf's politics which he does mention here when he's talking about the scavengers, but it's Idi Amin. Idi Amin. I think that's the proper pronunciation. Okay. Once again, like words I've never heard said out <laughs> that's loud. That's okay. So, but he was the third president of Uganda, and he's also known as one of the most brutal dictators in modern history. Yes. He killed many, many people. And I guess the reason why I wanted to bring this up is that once again, we get a wolf that seems to be aware of the suffering of like what he would have called the third world. Like, so while the Falkland Islands would have been on the news and people would have been at least peripherally aware of them, if I were to guess, most Americans probably couldn't pick Uganda out on a map. And here we have him aware of these smaller political issues on the world stage. Like He's just aware of these things, which I right. find interesting. Well, and his regime was particularly brutal and is notorious. So in one sense, it, it isn't totally obscure. But if in the sense of it's the 1980s and you're a Midwestern flyover country kind of person, like mm -hmm. it, Wolf just seems to have such an enormous openness and sensitivity to all that's going on in the world. Like I didn't even find it striking that he mentioned it because it seems in a sense very normal for him to be very attuned to many subtleties. Yeah. So coming from the previous short story, like from the cradle, yes. where one of the things that he, like the people that are grinding away in poverty, working on the AI and the algorithms that feed into the AI. Right. And these are third world people in Egypt. And so there's just a invisible people like are not as invisible as you would think in Wolf's right. articles and in his stories. I think that that's a good thing to draw attention to, partly for how it plays into larger conversations about Wolf's his perspective and the way that he uses defamiliarization, he uses literary techniques that make you look at things in a new way. And mm. I think it's very easy to see those as literary techniques. But in something like this, I think you start to get some small reference in a larger article. You start to get the sense that this is who he is as a person. The literary technique, as I think all literary techniques ought, flows out of him as a being, as a person, and yeah. not as a set of tricks. Yeah. That's the last thing I wanted to bring up for Eaters of the Dead. All right. Well, the unreliable narrators are Amanda Patchen and Britt Towell. And as Gene Wolfe said, once contaminated, a system is difficult to clean. 
The contaminants remaining in the system after a fluid change can, in many cases, catalyze undesirable reactions in the new clean fluid. Keep 